0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: And hello, beloved listeners, and uh, welcome back. And I welcome myself back, and in doing so, thanks to the uh, terrifically talented Tracey for sitting in while I was flooded in, which is an increasingly frequent problem in my part of the rural sector. As you know, this is the 90th birthday of the ABC. It is also the 90th birthday of one of our most formidable public intellectuals none other than my uh, oldest friend, Barry Owen-Jones. Yes, this very day, Barry turns 90. I'm an advocate for, um, you know, let let state funerals occur 10, 20 years down the track for Barry, but I think it's time to have state birthdays, and I declare today a state birthday for Barry Owen-Jones. Shortly... uh, Much to talk about with Bruce Shapiro. Then, on this uh, anniversary of the Bali bombings 20 years ago, we're going to look at how things have changed in Indonesia and the relationship it has with Australia. How are the Bali bombers viewed in Indonesia? and what are the current concerns about Islamic extremists. Over the decades, I've crawled into caves from Altamira to Africa, marvelling at cave art. But the simple truth is that some of the greatest cave art in the world is in Australia, and tonight we're off to the Kimberleys to discuss the significance of one particular image. But first of all, time to talk to uh, Bruce Shapiro and let me remind you that he's a contributing editor with The Nation magazine, the oldest left magazine on earth and the exec director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. I've been a bit lax of late, Bruce, I haven't given you your... uh, your full titles. Joe Biden talked to Zelensky in the last 24 hours since uh, Russian airstrikes on residential areas of Kiev. He's made it clear that the US is still very much on his side.
2: Yes, but you you also need to remember that in well, first of all, not only is the US very much on Zelensky's side, it is working very, very hard um, with the UN General Assembly in in session to get a resolution condemning um, Russia's annexation of territory through the UN and to do so with at least as many countries as Passed a similar resolution back in 2014. Um, there's a, it's you know can be a challenge. You have big non-aligned states in Latin America and Asia and elsewhere that have been uh, trying to stay on Russia's good side. Um, but this is a big one. At the same time, we need to remember that in in this um, arc of events from last Saturday's. Uh, attack Ukrainian attack on the uh, the Crimea bridge to yesterday's and this morning's horrific bombings, uh, missile strikes on civilian targets across Ukraine from Russia. Um, that Biden knows very well that in the background is the ever-present threat of, of nuclear escalation. Uh, he spoke last week with uncharacteristic. Candor on this front, um, with the use of the word "Armageddon," and pointed to the Cuban Missile Crisis, said this is the the most dangerous moment since that point. And of course, this was following the very bellicose, nuclear-threatening comments um, from from President Putin. Biden has, throughout this crisis, been playing a very delicate. Game, in which exactly which weapon systems he's willing to give to Ukraine, not wanting to uh, provoke um, a a nuclear escalation in the war, and at the same time to enable Ukraine to defend itself. I think what we're going to see as the result of of yesterday's and today's missile strikes, again at civilian targets. a war crime at birth basically um, what we're going to see is some additional uh, air defense systems uh, robust air defense systems that that washington have been slow to commit to because you know what do we see in the background here when biden says it's like the cuban missile crisis it's important to remember the lessons from that the cuban missile crisis was marked by um On the one hand, very dramatic public confrontation, threats, hard lines being articulated by politicians, and at the same time, um, very subtle signaling between Russia and the U.S. about what actions would be taken and tolerable. Would ships go across um, a blockade line or would they not? How far were we going to push a confrontation something similar has been going on here um you know biden talks about armageddon and yet russia knows perfectly well that washington has been very slow to give kiev Kiev, uh, capacities that would uh, enable it to strike deep into russian territory um putin in his public speeches is threatening nuclear weapons all the time now um and you need to take that seriously, but at the same time, the Kremlin spokesman yesterday, when asked if the attack on the bridge was, uh, on the bridge would um, meet the standard for uh, Russian nuclear retaliation, is it that degree of a threat to sovereignty? He explicitly said no. So there's a lot of, on the one hand, in within Russia signaling internally politically, to the m- most militant nationalist wing of Russian politics, um, and at the same time there is some kind of back-channel communication, if not quite negotiation, going on. Um, it's a, it remains a very dangerous time. But that, Biden that, also that knows,
1: back-channeling was crucial in uh, the Cuban crisis. Are you confident, or do we, do we know that it's of the, of the comparable calibre?
2: No, we don't. And that's one of the things that makes it so dangerous. Um, you know, The National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, has made it clear that lines of communication are open without specifying what they are. Uh, there is some evidence that India or China or perhaps even Israel have been part of some back-channel communication. But there's no evidence that the kind of direct negotiations that you saw in the Cuban missile crisis where... Um, the journalist John Scali and others were involved in you know, little meetings in restaurants in Washington. We haven't gotten any evidence of that. The other complicating factor for Biden is that, of course, we are four weeks out from um, hugely important midterms. And in the Republican Party, um, support for the Ukraine engagement is by no means universal. In fact, um, you know, many in the Trump faction of the Republican Party, um, do not want to see the commitment of resources. And polls show that nationally, there is kind of declining American interest in the Ukraine conflict. It doesn't mean folks aren't supportive, but it's not anyone's top issue. So this is a very complicated moment for the White House. um, Even as I think, the broad trajectory of the war clearly has been, you know, a decline in Russia's ability to hold on to its own territory. Um, Is this latest escalation a kind of spasm of retaliation for the bridge designed to placate the Russian nationalist uh, right? Or is it a strategic change on Russia's part to the kind of, all-out war on civilian life that we saw in Georgia and in Chechnya, Um, are they going to destroy the village in order to save it? Um, That's the danger in this moment.
1: Well, let's hope that uh, when Putin said he isn't bluffing, that he's bluffing. But things are so fraught, I think it might be timely to have a soothing uh, reefer and uh, tell me about cannabis in your country. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, you know, uh um I'm, I'm there's no evidence that Biden is a smoker, but if he were, he might be doing so now. i um, look, Biden made a historically genuinely very important announcement last week and it was on the one hand a sound policy decision and also a bit of an October surprise in the election season when he declared that he was going to use his presidential pardon power to pardon All federal, uh, all folks uh, convicted in federal court of simple marijuana possession. Now, you know, this is not a lot of people. It's a few thousand people currently in prison. It's many, tens of thousands um, who have criminal records that will be expunged. But to have a president of the United States directly enter the marijuana um, legalization debate like this um, is really quite dramatic. Uh, he also called on the, the, he also asked the Justice Department, uh, to review, um, its policies, ask the FDA to review the, um, the criminalization of cannabis as a schedule one drug. Um, and you know, this is a major move in the U S that is uh, affects both the, uh, or is pleasing both to the pro marijuana, traditional pro marijuana left, but also the libertarian right. Um, but, but Bruce, for heaven's normalized.
1: sake, it's such a, a small move. You know, the U.S. has foisted its farcical and counterproductive war on drugs on the entire planet. I don't think this is such a huge step.
2: Well, it's a huge step in part just because the federal government is doing it and it's symbolically enormously important. You also have to remember that the war on drugs, as we understand it now, is in part Joe Biden's doing. Back in 1994, he was one of the architects of the uh, key crime bill. He was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which established our current sentencing guidelines. He was a war on drugs kind of guy for many years. It marks a significant change that is going to ripple not only through American policy, but I think internationally in the years to come. That doesn't mean it's enough. It doesn't mean that the war on drugs is now over. It doesn't mean that the, the uh, horrific criminalization of recreational drugs, which has left millions of Americans imprisoned and with criminal records, um, is suddenly gone it does mean that some kind of tipping point has been passed look new york state uh, right next door to me now has legal um, recreational marijuana connecticut where i am speaking from um, has legal recreational marijuana starting uh, next year Um, this is a time of change and this little announcement from biden is part of that and it's Part of what makes this such a complicated time.
1: Well, I'm glad he's turning over a new leaf, and that that leaf is marijuana. <laughs> look, I r- briefly in a couple of minutes, I would like to look at one at least of the important midterms. Can you choose one at random?
2: <laughs> well, you know it's hard to pick, but let's let's talk briefly about Georgia, such a pivotal state in 2020, um, and which now is pitting the incumbent, um, Reverend Raphael Warnock, Democrat, and the pastor of Martin Luther King's old, um, old, old, uh, pew, old church, um, Ebenezer Baptist Church, incumbent Democrat against Herschel Walker, a formal, and a former NFL player endorsed by President Trump, also an African American. Uh, this has gotten... Wild and crazy in the last week, because it turns out that uh, Walker, running on one of the hardest, no exceptions, anti-abortion platforms in the country, embraced by the evangelical right, um, has been ha- has been paying for his. Uh, girlfriends abortions uh and has a a growing number of children out of wedlock the dynamic is complicated uh the evangelical right has embraced walker and he's running as someone who he he says has uh you know found grace um (laughs) and on the other hand you have warnock who is one of the most distinguished christian pastors in the country i have Been in his church before he was in politics. He's a remarkably eloquent and community-spirited figure. And this race is one of the ones, along with Pennsylvania and Arizona and a few others, that is completely up in the air. At this point, it is a 50-50 race. We don't know whether suburban and unaffiliated voters um, who supported Warnock last time are going to turn out we don't know whether Walker will spur Republican turnout in a very um, tight registration race there's just so much that's unknown no one is confident of the outcome any more than anyone's confident of the outcome of these most important midterms since the Civil War
1: well you can trust the evangelical right be absolutely wrong at almost every point in US history. But look, thanks for that, Bruce. We shall talk again in a week's time. Bruce Shapiro, our Voice of America and Contributing Editor with The Nation and Exec Director of the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University, which I've been neglecting to say in recent encounters. Next, Indonesia. 20 years since the Bali bombings and we're going to look at how that country has changed. The Bali bombings killed over 200 people, of which uh, 88 were from Australia. The attacks brought Indonesia and Australia closer together as police worked together to, well, to both deal with the dead and injured, but also to identify those responsible. Now, how did this terrible day change Indonesia? in how it sees itself and what has been the ongoing influence on the changing place of Islam in their democracy. Now, to discuss the the legacy of the bombings in, on Indonesia, I am pleased to welcome Professor Greg Feely to the program. Greg is an emeritus professor At the Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs at the ANU. Uh, Welcome back, Greg. I have to ask you this. I used to always ask uh, named chairs who or is, was, or was Coral Bell?
3: That's a very good question Philip. Uh, Coral Bell was one of the early female um, international relations and security studies experts in Australia. She originally had a career in the Department of Foreign Affairs but was one of those people who had to uh, resign when she married, if I'm remembering the story correctly. So she went on to have a long and illustrious academic career and naming a school of most schools of international studies and Asian studies in Australia are named after men. And uh, I think the, the Bell School is very proud that it's named after one of the pioneering female scholars in the field.
1: Thanks for that. Now, how did the Bali bombings change Indonesia?
3: It changed. Um, it changed Indonesia in a great many ways. Uh, of course, when the bombing happened, Indonesia was perhaps even more shocked than many other countries in the world. Uh, you know, Australia also, you know, had a terrible toll, a terrible loss of life in in that attack. But I think Indonesians. They knew that there were radical groups in their midst. There had been uh, sporadic bombings in the previous few years, but there'd been nothing on this scale. These were the kinds of terrorist attacks that Indonesians had read about as happening in other countries, and I don't think too many people imagined that they would happen in Indonesia. Initially, there was a lot of scepticism towards uh, the issue of who'd undertaken the bombings, and majority opinion in the Muslim community was this was probably a foreign intelligence agency. The CIA, Mossad, MI6 were often mentioned as potential perpetrators, and as the as the real perpetrators were brought to um, uh, to court and made to give evidence in open court, and the Indonesian public could see them admitting to their crimes, explaining how they 'd put the bombs together, talking about their motivation, it really helped to convince the Indonesian public the the uh, Indonesian public that um, that terrorism really was a homegrown problem. That these are people within their own bits. Okay, we'll, we'll were, come were back. We'll come back
1: activity. to that shortly. But I, do, I also understand from you that the bombing strengthened the role of police, which had only recently separated from the military.
3: That's true. For most of the Suharto authoritarian period, the new order period of government from the late 1960s through to the late 1990s, the police were in a way the most junior of the four services that were in the Indonesian armed forces. And so the separation of the police was really an important um cornerstone of the reform process that was undertaken and the police were given primary responsibility for domestic security is, had been a police force that didn't have a very high professional reputation. But one of the things that has really helped to rehabilitate its image, both domestically and globally, was the success of its counterterrorism fights. Basically, since the Bali bombing went off in October 2002, right up until the present, the counterterrorism detachment, Special Detachment 88, has continued to have extraordinary success in thwarting terrorist operations.
1: Of course, one of the other things that happened is there was a a strong connection between, well, the recently separated uh, Indonesian police and the Australian Federal Police.
3: Yes, and that is one direct consequence of the Bali bombing, one of the early... Uh, um, uh, policies that the Indonesian government agreed to, the then Megawati government, was that the Indonesian police and intelligence services were encouraged to ha- to openly cooperate with foreign police forces and other foreign security agencies who might be able to provide them with technical skills, valuable intelligence, anything that could help to, uh, to put the dragnet over uh, not only the people who had undertaken the Bali bombings, but also broader terrorist movements in Indonesia, and that that was very successful.
1: Now, Greg, when it became painfully clear to Indonesians that the conspiracy theories about uh, Mossad and other players were false, how were the Bali bombers perceived? Were they seen as uh, devout Muslims who'd gone awry?
3: increasingly the majority of indonesians viewed them as as criminals and as people who had uh, an interpretation of islam that was entirely alien to the mainstream and so there was not a great deal of sympathy when for example three of the key figures in the bombing operation were executed uh there was very little outpouring of grief there was among hardline Islamist groups and there were very emotional funerals for them in in their home cities but that was very much a fringe response. The great many Indonesians felt that they had got what was coming to them.
1: Now what's the current situation with the Islamic extremists? I know that uh, there were Indonesians that went to Syria
3: there were a great many Indonesians went to Syria and there were some very interesting, interesting dynamics in that. It was a very diverse group of people that went to Syria. We, And this was different. I think a point of comparison would be the Mujahideen struggle in northern Pakistan and particularly Afghanistan in the 1980s. And in that case, it was all men, usually young men, who went to those camps from Indonesia and other Southeast Asian nations but to Syria, we got entire families going, and quite often the available evidence suggests that the women members of the family were the ones who were most zealous about pursuing jihad within the Islamic State. So uh, it's one of the reasons that we we still have quite a lot of Indonesians in camps uh, awaiting repatriation to Indonesia. So there were some quite peculiar dynamics to that.
1: Are they, will they be returned
3: Uh, Well, quite a lot have been returned. It depends where they are. Those who were certainly uh, held in Turkey, a great many people were apprehended by Turkish authorities and so they couldn't get into Syria uh, and Iraq to join the um, ISIS forces. Those who are now in camps in in Syria, for example, yes, there is a process of repatriating them and Indonesia has had some success in rehabilitating those those people. It's, it hasn't really been a, an ideal operation, but nonetheless, a great many people have been, are on the way to being reintegrated into Indonesian society.
1: Talking to Greg Feely, Greg, uh, with Indonesia, it's still ISIS that's the most uh, influential?
3: It is. Uh, there's actually a the main cleavage that one could describe in the jihadist community is between those that are still loyal to Al-Qaeda and that, the main group there is Jema'a islamia the group that undertook the bali bombings 20 years ago but on the other side on the pro isis side uh, we have a number of groups but the main one is one called jad and that was responsible for the the biggest of the most recent terrorist attacks one in 2018 in surabaya and another in 2016 in central jakarta that group that jad group continues to attempt to bring off new terrorist attacks, but they are continually being defeated in that by the police. The police have superior intelligence and they're they're proven very effective at preventing those uh, operations from going ahead. So there's no lack of intention, but what is lacking is skills. People who can put together big bombs and who can put together highly coordinated operations are, are, are definitely in short supply, but also the police are just very effective at cracking open those groups.
1: And I see that more than 1,200 arrests have been made in, uh, well, the last four years.
3: It's Yes, that's an extraordinary number. And those arrests are both on the... JI side, the Gemma Islamiyah side, and and Gemma Islamia, I should add, has not been actively engaged in terrorism really as an organization really since the early 2000s. So uh, they're still recruiting and training people, but they have a longer term objective of establishing an Islamic state. Nonetheless, the Indonesian police have been very rigorous in particularly pursuing financial um, uh, uh, lines and um, tracing how money is entering the country, what it's being used for, and that is how they are managing to um, arrest very senior um, people in J.I. The same applies to ISIS as well, that, again, it's one of the most successful records, uh, certainly of any police force in the region, and I think one of the most successful records of any police force in the world. And it has all been done largely according to law. When people are arrested, they are brought before open proceedings in courts of law. They're tried in a very uh, given due process, and so... Um, most of those people who have been detained are successfully convicted and are jailed and quite often jailed for quite long periods of time.
1: And we note that there's been some success in de-radicalising extremists in prisons...
3: Yes, well, there have been, you know, well over a thousand uh, serious terrorists who have been released uh, over the last five, six years from from Indonesian jails. So one of the challenges for the counterterrorism police is to keep tabs on all of these people. The majority of them seem to have been rehabilitated or have decided to be de-radicalised or to be de- disengaged is perhaps the best word to use for it. They may not have completely renounced jihadist principles, but they have decided that for the moment they will not be involved. Um, there are various motivations that can be behind that. Sometimes the police and, and other counterterrorism authorities uh, set them up in businesses. Sometimes flamy pressure can turn out to be a uh, A decisive factor. Sometimes also jihadist prisoners are integrated into the broader prison population. They get to meet non-Muslims, for example, and some of the stereotypes, the very negative stereotypes they have of people who are not Muslims, uh, disappear when they get to know people and become friendly with them. So there are quite a lot of reasons why people may decide to desist from terrorism.
1: Let's look at Jokowi's balancing act because he's got to deal with those who wish to make Islam more central to government.
3: Uh, he does have to deal with that. It's a it's a somewhat complex picture. If we look at the election results over the last five elections, if we're particularly the last four elections, so the last 20 years, the four Islamic parties have got roughly the same amount of vote. It's about 30% of the vote. And this is in a country that is almost 90% Muslim. So only about a third of the Muslim population is voting for overtly Islamic parties. There are a great many more devout Muslims who are actually voting for parties that um, are not primarily Islamic parties. They're voting for parties on the basis of their programs because they think those parties will run the country well, uh, will, will help to, um, uh, bring about pro- greater prosperity in the country, so they have a broader set of agendas. Even though in their personal lives they're they're pietistic and very often increasingly conservative, so we need to make this distinction. Indonesian society is islamizing, and the values are becoming increasingly conservative. conservative but it's not necessarily flowing through into the political sphere. Um, so. That's the situation that Jokowi is um, responding to. To the more hardline Islamist groups, to the groups that are more trenchant in their opposition to him, uh, he does actually crack down quite severely on them and quite a few Islamist leaders have been jailed, quite often on fairly minor charges, and a lot of other Islamist leaders have gone quiet under the threat of prosecution. So he's been quite effective at... Um, uh, intimidating um, the the more right wing elements in the Islamist community.
1: Now, Tricouri can only uh, run for two terms, and under the under the constitution, so uh, there are elections ahead. What do you foresee happening? Who do you see as the major players?
3: So, the so the election will be held in twenty twenty four, the next presidential election. At the moment, um, Indonesia's presidential rules make it different from, difficult for there to be um, a large number of candidates or pairs of candidates, but it's very likely uh, for the last two presidential elections, we've only had two pairs of candidates and they were the same two um, in both occasions, which was Jokowi is one pre- leading one presidential team and Prabowo Subianto leading the other. And Prabowo Subianto, after the last election, decided to um, stop, remove himself from opposition to become part of the government. So he's now the defence minister. He's now pursuing a new strategy in order to try for a third time to get elected as president. So he's one of the front runners. As you mentioned, Jokowi can no longer run. He's reached his constitutional limit. The other two strong candidates, Philip, are both governors, or one of them a recently ex-governor, and that is Anis Baswedan in Jakarta. And the third candidate, the one who is currently on top of many of the polls, is the governor of central Java, Ganja Pranowo. Um, so these three people are vying against each other. Just a few days ago, we had um, one of the important coalition parties um, decided to throw its nomination or to nominate Anis Baswedan, this former Jakarta governor. And so he's often running. Um, Prabowo's party has already made clear that they will be nominating him. So uh, this is already proving a distraction um, in in elite politics in Indonesia. There's a lot to, that, that can change over the next few years, but I think the broad... Outline of what we will have until 2024 is already pretty apparent. It's probably going to be these three candidates, Prabowo, Anis Baswedan and Ganjar Pranowo.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, that things have gone up and down over the years, relationships between Indonesia and Australia. But uh, it has led, the Bali bombings has led to closer collaboration, not only on police matters, but also militarily. Greg, thanks for your time. I've been talking to Professor Greg Feely, Emeritus Professor in the well-named Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. And uh, now for a complete and absolute change of of subject, we're going to meet the director of an astonishing new film about an ancient creation spirit which takes us from the opening of the Sydney Olympics into the Kimberley. I'm going to tell you about Namarali now. Namarali came from another place. He was originally an origin person, but he came towards the coast looking for a new home. It was after the Great Flood. The law was here before he came, but he offered a new idea about how to live in this country. He was a smart person who persuaded the people to follow his new ideas. But eventually, Amarali got into trouble. He took the wrong woman. So the people gathered, painted themselves in ochre, and they had a big battle, a huge battle. I want you to think back to the opening ceremony of the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Rising high into the air was a giant spirit creature that many thought looked like an alien wearing a space helmet. He had a golden white head and large black eyes and the head was surrounded in a crown. The creature's name was Namarari, and now a film tells the story of both the creation spirit and the creator of its image a remarkable artist who sadly passed away recently. We have permission to call him D.W. and he co-produced the film alongside Tim Mumry who as well as being co-producer is the director and editor of the film and Tim joins us from our studios in Perth. Tim, welcome to our little wireless program. Can we begin by you painting a portrait of the late DW? Tell us his story.
0: DW was a, um, a very, very important person for his community. Uh, he was an, an artist and, and he was a leader, a very, very strong leader, but he was a, he was a very, he was a quiet person and he he would go about leading in a very dignified and quiet way. You weren't quite sure how things would were going to go with him, but he always found a way of of making things happen, and he was a very patient person as well, yeah.
1: I understand he was born on a mission in a remote uh, part of Kimberley in, what, 1947?
0: Yeah, yeah, so he was born on or just outside um, Kunmunya, which is a, was a Presbyterian mission that set up in the Waroran homelands in the, originally in, in 1910 or somewhere like that. But by the time he was born, it, was, it had moved, and it was, but it was still in the Waroran homelands and, and it collected the Waroran people to it.
1: So in the 60s, the Waroran people and others were moved off their lands by the government and taken far away to a community near Derby.
0: They were, yes. They were, they were first moved to a, another site on the coast called Watchulham, but that didn't turn out to be um, a good manoeuvre. Then they were moved all the way down to Derby, which was the administrative capital, if you like, of, of the West Kimberley. And they were moved to a place called Old Moenjam and then eventually they were moved yet again to a place um, not far away from there, still just on the outskirts of Derby, called Mowinjum now, and that's where they are today.
1: Now, after his uh, father's death in 1979, DW takes responsibility for the land and for passing on the traditions.
0: Yes, he inherits that directly from his father. But he didn't, painting was really the tool with which he kind of rose to prominence and he didn't start painting until he was 50, but he was an absolute natural and he kind of collectively, they took the world by storm in the late 90s and that kind of led to the Olympics in 2000.
1: I understand his works have been featured on the sales of the Opera House and uh, he also won the red ochre award which has gone to well david golpaul archie roach and uh, uncle jack charles
0: he's a he's he's right up there he's a he's a he's a proper serious aboriginal leader within this country but like i said he was a he was a quiet person he he was he went about his he uh, you know there's no histrionics with dw he just went quietly about his mission
1: I want you to tell us about the land there. At the moment, I'm looking at the rock formations on the beach. Absolutely extraordinary and significant to the story.
0: Absolutely. That's a, a place called Langy. That coast gets 10 metres, 9 metres to 10 metres of water in and out twice a day. So the rock formations that form the start of, of Namorali's story for bits of the day are completely covered by water. So the story actually is revealed naturally as the tide recedes. It's it's an amazing place. It really is. And those those stones are wanginas, and that that is the field of a, of a massive battle, as D.W. described in that opening bit. Um, and that's that's Namarelli story starts begins there.
1: Where inland are the caves where the Wanjinas. Creation spirits are depicted, don't you?
0: They're, they're all through the Kimberley, so right on the coast and then right the way through. So there are three language groups, two on the coast and then one inland. So they are, yeah, they're on, on river courses um, and by by water pools and, yeah, on, on the coast, all through that country. There would be thousands and thousands of, of rock sites through the Wangina peoples' countries.
1: So the Wara believed that the great creative spirit was buried in the roof of a cave.
0: Yeah, Langi is where the story starts, but ultimately the story leads you to a cave, which is probably five kilometres inland from that beach site. And it's, the cave itself is, is amazing. The first time I saw it, I couldn't believe that it was a natural forming Object. It, it it looks and feels like it's been built by someone. It, it's like an Athenian temple almost. It's, it's the the roof runs probably ten meters, and it's and it's at you know varies between two meters to one point eight meters above the ground. And on the roof of, of that cave is this four meter long um, image, uh, originally completely white with a, with a red ochre outline. And uh, yeah, that's that's Namorali. That's where Namorali lives. And
1: he is seen as the biggest boss, like a sort of president.
0: Absolutely, DW described him as yeah, like, like a prime minister. He actually said to me that he he was um, he had the responsibility for all the portfolios that other Wanjunas w- w- would hold. That's how he described it. So he yeah yeah he's the he's. The, the, the main man for the Waroran people,
1: and D.W.'s dad Sam was the last initiated custodian of the caves.
0: Yes, he he was. He passed in the seventies. And there's another. He there's a film that um, called Lili, which which is a very similar film to the film that I made, in which Sam walks with his family into Namurali's cave. And you get to see Namarali's Cave from the 70s. So it's
1: like an Old Testament and a New Testament, the two films. Now, how did you get involved with the story, Tim?
0: I just happened to be in the community filming a health video in 2000, probably in June of 2000. And at the end of that trip, we were told that DW was about to go to Sydney and that one of his wanderners would appear at... The opening ceremony of the Olympics, and so I, I met with with DW and Mark Norval, who was the art facilitator um, at Monjuma at the time, and and it also came out that on the back of Namorali being at the Olympics, DW really wanted to visit the cave Namorali, and that was enough for me. As soon as I heard that they'd be going to Sydney, Namorali would go to Sydney, and then there'd be this trip up to the cave Namorali and that he would refresh the cave Namorali, then then I was like, please let me follow with a camera. I'll meet you in Sydney (laughs) and uh, we can go from there.
1: Now, the film shows DW organising the community to travel to the site and help perform the task.
0: Absolutely. So um, once we leave... Amangium and Derby, and and take a a two day boat trip, two hundred and fifty k's odd north. We do that with his family. There at least twenty people over two boats, and we camped on the coast with those family groups for. I think we were up there for five days. In the film, there's we're on the we're on the coast for three days. But yeah, there was a lot of a lot of people, men, women, and children came on the trip.
1: Now um, his project is to replenish, renew, revive this great tradition by keeping, well, keeping the spirits alive and repainting it is crucial.
0: Absolutely. It's called, they refer to it as refreshing. So they're not recreating him in a sense. They are they are just making him bright. That's what they always said. A bright wangina is a happy wangina. So that, that is their mission. The other mission is also to actually re-establish that ceremonial practice of refreshing Wanjinas because the hundreds of Wanjinas in the country are, are sitting there without their people refreshing them. Pre, pre-contact, during the dry, in the middle of the year, all of these cave sites would be visited and they would all be refreshed by the owners of those cave sites.
1: Now, you've got access to the film you mentioned before of Father Sam back in 72 and you weed that into yours.
0: I do. In fact, my film really potentially could be called Lili Two, because that, that original film is called Lili. Lili is 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 creation time. That's what that word means. So, really, I'm um, I've made Lili Part Two. So, yeah, I was very lucky to be able to have access to that to that film made by Michael Edels in 1972.
1: There is a dramatic difference, and that is this time women are included.
0: Women were at the forefront of that painting renaissance that happened in the late 90s. Um, yeah, some of the some of the most amazing paintings that came out of that period are, are by women. And, and so I don't know that there was ever a question. There would have been a question, actually, as to whether women could go on the trip and visit caves. But in terms of their agency as painters and in terms of... Um, DW's mission in spreading the word, really he needed as many as many advocates as possible. So the but it, ha- but it has right to it. be
1: pointed out that women and children had in the past been excluded as it was deemed, well, secret men's business.
0: Absolutely. yeah, women in the film you you actually hear from a woman who is she's frightened about what's about to happen. She's not, she, she, she knows that history, she knows that, that um, previously women were absolutely not allowed to go to these sites. So she's happy to go, but she's also nervous because she knows that it's a place that, that her ancestors, her, her female ancestors, would never have been able to access.
1: But because of the urgency, well, of cultural survival, women and children needed to be included.
0: Absol- absolutely, and for that mission of, of re-establishing ceremony, you want to spread that word as far as you can. As he, uh, DW wanted as many faces in this film from the community as possible because this becomes almost like a text text for them as to, to how you go about re- recreating ceremony around Wanjina Caves.
1: It's quite moving when DW, well, he talks about his ambition. He says he wants the right to be ourselves... In our own country
0: yeah, yeah, he does that uh, that that line is something that has always s- stuck with me actually because when you if you think about reconciliation you, you, reconciliation involves both sides yielding to to have a to have a center in which the mutual difference can be understood and the, and the, in that statement that's kind of what he's suggesting doesn't happen that he he says that western culture can give you lots of things but it won't let you be who you are and it's to me that's a really heartbreaking statement but but that's what this that's what his mission is actually all about reclaiming what they are via ceremony
1: he must have been so proud to to bring this empower, overwhelmingly powerful image to the world at the olympic opening
0: oh absolutely he was he was in he was in tears in the stands actually, um, and he got straight on the phone um, once Namarali had descended and spoke to people back in the community and everyone was watching it. And to this day, it's still, you know, it's still talked about. It was, it's, it was a watershed moment for that community. Now, you
1: first showed the film in Derby to the, in the Kimberleys, to the community who were removed from their traditional lands. Tim, how was it received?
0: Uh, they loved it. Yeah, so we played, we um, built a screen and bought a projector and screened it in the Derby Civic Centre and there were over 200 people there and key community members and at the end we arranged for DW to stand and and be cheered. So we had a standing ovation at the end of it and yeah, he he was visibly moved and I was greatly relieved that he had finally seen this project come to fruition.
1: And now the art centre of the community has opened a new museum dedicated to preserving this culture.
0: It has. Yep. Um, and Namrali played at the opening of that museum as well. So yeah, the, there's, there's loads happening at, at Mowindjum in terms of making sure that this tradition is, is kindled and, and moves forward in, in, a, in a meaningful way.
1: Tim, we recently talked to the uh, Muratjuga people of the Kimberleys about mining in their region and the new gas pipelines threatening their rock art. Having seen the significance of the art to the Aboriginal people, how do you feel when when you hear these stories? I mean,
0: one is short-term gain and another is our collective memory, in a sense. I mean... Yes. So I've, I, yeah, very, very short sighted to, to put, you know, natural res- resources ahead of any sort of cultural heritage within this country. Absolutely.
1: Tim, congratulations on what you've achieved. I've been talking to Tim Mamari, director, editor and co-producer of Namarari, which is screening on Saturday the 15th of October in Sydney as a part of the Antenna Film Festival, and then on Thursday the 20th of October as a part of the Fremantle Design Week in, yes, Fremantle. On our next, an update from the Pacific. China cleans up ahead of the 20th Party Congress and an atlas. Of abandoned places See you then